This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we get to the end of Capote's Coterie for now. It's the swan song of Truman Capote. With Truman doing most of the damage to himself in two ways, really. The first, it's the publication of the few chapters of Answered Prayers. And the second, Truman's own hubris. Truman Capote's third act is not the resounding success he thought it would be. Dominic Dunn's third act could have gone in a similar way as Truman's, but it did not. In this episode, we're going to wind down with Truman's third act, those chapters, his demise, his swan song, what happens and why. Let's investigate. What a story I have for you today. I want to begin with a recommendation, Capote, a biography by Gerald Clark. It is an extraordinary compilation of all things Truman Capote. Gerald Clark has knocked it out of the park. If you need a juicy book to put into your vacation bag, this could be the one. It is so fascinating, I can't seem to put it down and have been making more episodes about Truman Capote just because it's so amazing when we are really here to get to our man Nick. Capote is truly a masterwork. This next bit is from a piece published in the New York Times from Molly Haskell. Writing about the publication of this book in her review, I recommend for Gerald Clark's work, so much that I have included a large portion of Molly Haskell's amazing description of it here. Again, all sources are linked over at doneanddone.com. This is from a piece called Unmourned Losses, Unsettled Claims, published June 12, 1988 by Molly Haskell. Holly Golightly, say moi, Truman Capote, might well have said, echoing the words of Flaubert. A number of dashing women about town claimed to be the model for the heroine of Breakfast at Tiffany's, but to a marked degree, she took her shape and essence and angst and hummingbird existence from the author himself. Flaubert, Capote's literary idol, only entered the mind of Emma Bovary, whereas Capote was his provincial waif. In this 1958 novel, the future avatar of new journalism was already recording the arc of his life. He had come to the big city from Monroeville, Alabama. 
he charmed and wrote his way into the literary limelight. He seduced the rich and famous. He would waver at the top where drugs, alcohol, and the mean reds, the free-floating anxiety that ambushed the deeply insecure, would get the best of him, and he would spiral down in a sordid exit that lacked the grace and brevity of Holly's. Moreover, when it came time to do the movie A Breakfast at Tiffany's, he saw Holly not as Audrey Hepburn, but as Marilyn Monroe. In a tantalizing aside in Gerald Clark's enthralling novel-like biography, Capote, we learn that he actually argued Monroe's case with the producers. In her blithe elegance, Audrey Hepburn was a perfect emblem for the swans, Babe Paley, Gloria Guinness, Slim Keith, to whom Capote would be attracted as courtier and confidant, but the more vulnerable Monroe was his mirror image, another yellow-haired, love-starved country bumpkin with a little girl's voice who never quite filled the void in her heart and who finally overdosed on love's substitutes drugs, and celebrity. We tend to look at such careers as tragic foreshortenings. Monroe's sudden suicide, Capote's slow-motion crash landing. Except for occasional stories and some brilliant fragments of answered prayers, he wrote himself out with In Cold Blood almost 20 years before his death in 1984. But, looked at from another angle, Capote's death was a triumph over the sort of background that turns people into axe murderers. The killers that Capote encountered when he went to Holcomb, Kansas to write about the murder of the Clutter family and met Perry Smith and Dick Hickok. The killer that Capote himself became far more efficiently than Perry and Dick when, in poisonous prose and on talk shows, he laid waste his friends and skewered his competitors with malice as pure as the air in an oxygen tent. How Capote went from an enchanter, the startlingly fresh voice of his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, to someone you wanted to hold away from you with a pair of tongs, is an amazing story, as disturbing as anything Capote ever wrote. In this work of prodigious research gracefully presented, Mr. Clark, who had his subject's confidence during the last years, gives Capote what the writer himself, in a last grand gutsy gesture, declared he wanted— a book in which nothing, nothing at all, was left out. Mr. Clark, a former senior writer at Time magazine, makes us take a longer look at Capote than I, for one, ever thought I wanted to take, and the result is mesmerizing, a fine-tuned balance, unusual for an author so immersed in his subject of empathy and dispassion. The book reads as if it had been written alongside the life rather than after it, like a car following a train, 
the driver picking up passengers as they alight, always catching the right people at the right time. He pulls together the pieces of the puzzle and makes us see a terrible inevitability in the journey from the fetching little fellow with an uncanny talent. A specific gift for writing, said one early observer, like a musician's for music, to the blocked and bloated self-parody whose most severe lacerations were self-inflicted. I mean, what a review, Molly Haskell. And no, Gerald Clark's book is really good if you were looking for a great biography of Truman. Let's continue from that piece, catching up with Truman Capote's biography, because what language Molly Haskell uses here to summarize is a literary finesse worth spending some time on to take us to Truman's pinnacle. There are a few threads here we want to be reminded of. Capote was born Truman Strexfus Persons in a New Orleans hotel in 1924 of parents who were alike only in their frightening inadequacy as parents. How true is that? Lily Mae Falk realized she had made a mistake hours after marrying Arch Persons, and they more or less went their separate ways thereafter, leaving Truman to be raised by an eccentric family of maiden aunts and a bachelor uncle. Lily Mae was that most treacherous of mothers, a discontented small-town beauty who would appear in his life for a day or two, wafting the perfume of motherhood over him, then disappear. Arch was a charming, no-account con man, but it was Arch who, in preventing Lily Mae from having the abortion she had desperately wanted, saved Truman's life. And it was Arch with whom Truman had to thank for his literary talent. The Persons family were great letter writers, and the samples of Arch's wheedling, money-grubbing epistles included here are comic masterpieces, marvels of double-talk and self-deception. With his father's instinct for getting inside people and articulating their wants before they quite knew them, Truman was a born seducer and spellbinder, a pocket Merlin, Harper Lee called him, in the fictional portrait of her childhood companion that appears in To Kill a Mockingbird, a curiosity whose, quote, hair was snow white and stuck to his head like dandruff, and whose head teemed with eccentric plans, strange longings, and quaint fancies, unquote. Odd little elf that he soon recognized himself to be, he saw the advantage of using his oddness to get the attention he craved. He felt his effeminacy early on and came to terms with it. Until he was about nine, Mr. Clark tells us, quote, he found being a boy so demanding and burdensome that he actually wanted to be a girl, unquote. The mannerisms of his homosexuality, the whiny lisp, the feyness, the mischievous needling, all exaggerated for effect, 
were the budding performer's way of flaunting his difference and upstaging the competition. Meanwhile, Lily May had moved to New York, successfully remarried to Joe Capote, a Cuban businessman, and gained custody of Truman, and she was wild with alarm over her son's sissy mannerisms. Ever sensitive to public opinion, she changed her name from the yokelish Lily May to Nina in preparation for her ascendancy to the suburban haute bourgeois. She began hauling him to shrinks, sending him to military schools, and moaning to friends and neighbors that she would have preferred a dumb, football-playing insurance salesman's son to the one she had. And from that time on, through the decline of Joe Capote's fortunes and her growing misery and drunkenness, she was unrelenting in her refusal to forgive his homosexuality or to accept compensation in the form of his growing literary achievement. She had her bouts of affection, too, as such mothers do, and mother and son, the son waiting as children do for the sudden sunbursts, were locked into a lifelong love-hate relationship, sharing apartments and bottles, evenings and battles, until she died a suicide in 1954. It is in 1954 that Truman's mother, Lily Mae, dies. That same year, 1954, is the year Truman Capote meets Babe Paley and the manifestation of Truman's second set of swans begins. There is something to that within Truman's psychosis, I think. Lily May passing away into the development of some transference over to Babe and those swans. Lily May is the original swan. Where does Truman take that energy once Lily May passes after that kind of relationship. Listen to that once again. Locked into a lifelong love-hate relationship, sharing apartments and bottles, evenings and battles, until she died. Back to Molly Haskell. Like Narcissus, Capote was enraptured by his own reflection. He was a genius at self-promotion and those indelible photographs became inseparable from the prose itself. The flirtatious changeling in the humid, sultry picture on the jacket of other voices' other rooms wafts up from every page of the book, and the image of Harold Halma's portrait of the supine seducer clung to him for years. Yet, paradoxically, Capote's freakishness was a kind of camouflage that allowed him to disappear, become a fly on the wall. His size and mascot-like appearance put people off guard. The number of animal references that crop up in Clark's book is almost comical. Lion cub, pony, chipmunk, 
koala bear, alley cat, bunny, banty rooster, ant of genius, frog, and Jacqueline Suzanne's famous retaliatory capon after he said she looked like a truck driver in drag. Those are a few of the zoological images, some more benign than others, that spring to the minds of witnesses. Coupled with his disarming appearance was his shrewd conversational tactic of offering people choice tidbits of his own past, whereupon they, according to the tacit trade-off on which gossip and fellowship are based, would disgorge volumes of their own. In a long, drunken dinner in a Hong Kong hotel room, the fiercely reticent Marlon Brando found himself pouring out the story of his mother's own alcoholism that would turn up in Capote's famous New Yorker profile, A Duke in His Domain. The cast of characters with whom he fell in and out of love and collaborated, yachted, and partied is enormous, swelling through four decades, shrinking in one, an eclectic collection of highbrow and lowlife, a geographical stretch from Peggy Guggenheim's Palazzo to the flesh pots of 42nd Street. They were also a voluble and bitchy lot, and much of the brightness of the book comes from the aptness and the observations Mr. Clark has tracked down or got firsthand. A very funny description of Capote's brief tenure as a copyboy at the New Yorker, where his behavior and appearance caused havoc among the normally phlegmatic staff. Two of the elevator men were so confused that they bet a dollar on his gender, reports Mr. Clark, and one of the women was so vividly impressed by him that she dreamed that his veins were filled with milk, whole or skimmed, she did not say, <laughs> is interspersed with the curmudgeonly voices of E.B. White and Harold Ross. For God's sake, Ross cried when he saw the tiny employee, what's that? Neither the uproar he caused nor the alliances he formed, most notably with Daisy Terry, the notoriously difficult office manager, nor the stories he submitted induced anyone to lift the New Yorker's traditional barrier against copyboys becoming writers, which was... Mr. Clark ventures a stroke of good fortune. Trying to write the genteel made-to-order story, then in vogue, would have stifled the quirkily original gifts Capote was able to develop in the more adventurous pages of Harper's Bazaar and Mademoiselle under the literary tutelage of editors like George Davis and Mary Louise Aswell. His love affairs, mostly with older men of a conservative stamp, are amply documented. Among the most fascinating was his long, weekends-only relationship with Newton Arvin, the conservative Smith professor and Melville scholar whom he met at Yaddo, and with whom 
he served a sort of literary apprenticeship. Capote had never gone to college, and he had the autodidacts, fanatical favorites, and unaccountable gaps. He went to the movie of Great Expectations and became more and more agitated. They've stolen my plot, he screamed furiously. His stories arose out of nowhere, self-made, innocent and all-knowing. The prose is exquisite, limpid with bright, sharp images in a shallow field. Yet it's the shallowness that gives his characters their eerie and essentially two-dimensional sense of isolation. The tableau-like vignettes he creates in In Cold Blood are as stark as an Edward Hopper painting. Those representatives of the two Americas, the well-rounded, God-fearing clutters on the one hand and the scum of the earth, Hickok, and Smith, on the other, are equally solitary figures in an American landscape that is chilling even in 100-degree heat. The absence of other writing voices in his literary bloodstream, enriching and harmonizing with his own, may have had a diminishing effect, but it also enabled him to preserve what was unique in his own sensibility, that thin air of receptivity, a listening void, a recording apparatus for human voices he encountered and registered so acutely. He was a strange sort of ventriloquist, taking into his confidence Kansas housewives and FBI agents, and filling station owners, and murderers, and monomaniacal sheriffs, getting inside them and speaking with their voices. His best sustained acts of Madame Psychosis were with society's subsidiary characters, small, unofficial character players nobody else listened to, older women, gigolos, fashion plates, waifs, outsiders, all those whose satellite status gave them special poignancy. He was especially good with women. Jennifer Jones was never more relaxed than as the playful aggressor to Humphrey Bogart's cynic in Beat the Devil, the John Huston melodrama in which Capote's mischievous screenplay offered a sly counterpart to Houston's sourly masculine world view. But most of all, he was a child who enticed us into becoming children again, and who, with his bathroom and boudoir privileges, turned us all into diminutive voyeurs. I hope that you're seeing, if you have been involved in the investigation since the beginning some of these through lines where we've talked about Dominic Dunn, he learns so much by watching Truman Capote. Who to listen to, how to listen, how to reframe. There are so many through lines and connections. These will all come back around in our investigation. Remember Dominic Dunn, Jennifer Jones, good friends. There are so many spider webs in all of it. Back to Truman. 
Even Capote's grandiosity, his invocations of Proust, the formal innovations claimed for in cold blood, and his fury at being passed over by the literary establishment for the awards and credit he thought were his due, had something of the child's peak. Although In Cold Blood had every right to be considered a pioneering work in the sort of idiosyncratic, personal fiction like journalism that would enliven the 60s and 70s, Capote's insistence on giving it the pretentiously exalted and meaningless title of a nonfiction novel did him more harm than good. This literary coup was followed by that no less grandiose social coup, the mammoth black and white ball he threw at the Plaza Hotel for Catherine Graham and 500 close friends, a child's fantasy that was intended to overwhelm as much as entertain and that was as important for who it left out as for who was included. I want you to make a note here about Catherine Graham, the lady that Truman Capote hosted his ball for, although we all know that Truman's ball was for himself. Catherine Graham is going to be playing a very key role in the life of our man Nick in short order. It was in 1966, the year of these two triumphs. So we're referring to In Cold Blood and Truman's Black and White Ball. 1966, the year of these two triumphs, when black and white, positive and negative, were precariously balanced, that things began to unravel. And investigators, it is true at the peak of Truman Capote's highest success in 1966, the novel and the party of the century. Looking back, we can see the beginning of the end. Continuing from Haskell, with the spectacular success of In Cold Blood, his favorite quotation, St. Teresa of Avila's, more tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones, was on its way to becoming his epitaph. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. About In Cold Blood, he had spent over five years on the book, living it, conducting hundreds of interviews, writing it, 
involved in a story that was winding at an inexorable snail's pace toward the hanging of two people with whom he had become intimate. Gradually, and just as inexorably, something happened to him. The voices of the past, the grudges, the unaccepted and unmourned losses and unsettled claims rose up to haunt him. And in Perry Smith, Mr. Clark suggests, he seemed to come face to face with the demons of failure, the dark side of his own unloved self he had been fleeing all his life. Perry, the half-Cherokee psychopath with the dreamy eyes and the literary ambitions, the stocky little guy whose feet didn't touch the floor when he sat in a chair, the lost soul who'd been betrayed by an alcoholic mother and spurned by a loved and hated father, the pretentiously self-educated writer who never got beyond the third grade but nurtured a murderous grudge against anybody who had. It all came too close for comfort. Capote's dark doppelganger, facing him from behind bars, waiting to be executed, howling with self-pity, and infuriating Capote with that trait from which he himself was remarkably free, but which he had recognized and hated in his own father. How could he not have felt shadowed by Perry's feelings, Perry's fate? A writer who had a notoriously difficult time with endings, those soundings of the depths that are advance notices of mortality. He simply sidestepped this one altogether. He reported Dick Hickok's last words and actions, but it seems to me he left a hole where Perry should have been. As Capote's sense of himself began slipping, so did his female alter egos, his Galateas. I do want to make a connection here, friends, because it's not only going to happen with the ladies about to be mentioned, Truman Capote's high society swans, but it also happens with his childhood friend Harper Lee. By the time Truman Capote is writing In Cold Blood, Harper Lee has finished her novel To Kill a Mockingbird, it is released in July of 1960, winning the Pulitzer Prize in the following year, 1961. Harper Lee, through 1959, all the way through this time, is helping out her friend Truman Capote. She is making the friends in Holcomb, Kansas. Harper is dictating notes as well. Truman Capote, through this time from the beginning of the research for In Cold Blood in 1959 to its release in 1966. Those seven years take a toll. Truman is waiting and researching and working and narcissizing, let that be a word in the mirror, and writing and then waiting to publish what he knows is going to be his success, his ultimate triumph. Again, tossed around here, triumph and epitaph. What is that quote from St. Teresa again? More tears are shed over answered prayers 
than unanswered ones. Perhaps that is the truth. Molly Haskell continues here about Truman's Galateas and how the sense of himself really begins slipping. In the 50s, the stylishly rich women who obsessed him did so as much for their stories as for their beauty. Gloria Guinness, Slim Hayward, later Lady Keith, Pamela Churchill, Morella Agnelli, many of them, says Mr. Clark, had struggled, schemed, and fought to be where they were. They had created themselves as he himself had done. Each was an artist, he said, whose sole creation was her perishable self. What Mr. Clark calls Capote's Pygmalion complex was limited to a kind of creative empathy with women who were already highly evolved. He drew them out, filled in the gaps, for example, instructing Babe Paley in literature while she polished and tutored his taste in decor, the fine arts, and other refinements of the good life. However, his later, more ambitious projects to make Lee Radzwill an actress, Joanne Carson a toast of Los Angeles society, were dismal failures. The drugs and alcohol he'd successfully avoided for so much of his life, he now turned to with a vengeance. And the writing became more difficult as he grew disenchanted with and even repelled by the jet-set knobs he'd panted after. The task he had assigned himself, a Proustian masterwork chronicling the excesses, the charms, the conversations of the Beaumont he knew so well, was turning into a work of unrelieved, if brilliant, venom, and was finally sabotaged with the publication of The Coat Basque Episode in Esquire. His friends dropped him. He was stunned or pretended to be. I want to circle back here. Dominic Dunn, when he would get wrecked on drugs and alcohol in his bottoming out period in the 1970s, would be visited by two authors, at least in his intoxicated imagination. One of those, Somerset Mom, the other, Proust. Proust in his content is most certainly a connection between Truman and Dominic Dunn. Capote wants to write, what is that, the Proustian masterwork chronicling the excesses, the charms, the conversations of the Beaumont. Dominic Dunn does that. He gets a chance in his third act to do that. I find this transference of knowledge experience from Truman to Dominic Dunn really intriguing. Dominic Dunn most certainly owes something to Truman, but I also think witnesses Truman's spectacular downfall through Nick's own downfall. This is definitely a thread we're coming back to, but something really connected in those threads. We're going to go ahead and finish out with what we need from Molly Haskell here. Capote hadn't played by the rules, hadn't understood 
that his status among the rich was that of a petted and tolerated outsider. He was meant to celebrate them, not expose them. Isolated, he lashed back, and his social and sexual habits grew ever more labyrinthine and degenerate. In an attempt to complete the broken triangle of his childhood, he had made a specialty of attaching himself to couples. But as with the Paleys, with whom he formed the major glorious triangle of his life, he was then compelled to drive a wedge between the partners and try to destroy them by seducing first one, if only emotionally, then the other. His love affairs took a pathological turn as well, between reunions with Jack Dunphy, the writer with whom he had lived for many years, he took up with heterosexual non-entities, bartenders, air conditioner salesmen, whose only appeal was their utter averageness. They were, as Mr. Clark points out, pale reincarnations of the all-American type preferred by his mother and of the military schoolboys who had once mocked him. He prided himself on having seduced these rather weak specimens of heterosexuality away from women, although one notable art critic suggested he had simply grown too fat and ugly and undesirable to attract a homosexual. But as social embarrassments, these preposterous lovers may have had another more deviously self-destructive purpose, that of dissolving Capote's few remaining friendships. To writers, to all of us, Capote became a morbidly fascinating spectacle. In his ad hominem writing and his mincing, swaggering knockout punches on talk shows, he revealed more about the literary and jet-set worlds and their insidious interminglings than we wanted to know. Sometimes his nastiness was refreshing, an antidote to the ego-preening and liberal attitudinizing of most media darlings. But in exposing the secrets of real people in private situations, in his willingness to betray all confidences, all conversations, Capote transgressed the limits that even the most cavalierly confessional writers have accepted, if only in the interest of self-preservation. Cruelty has a way of boomeranging. If the people Capote had once loved were now loathsome and worthless, how did he escape that taint of worthlessness? And if they were larger than he was? He wrote exquisitely mean things about Sartre, de Beauvoir, Camus, but they're still standing tall, and he isn't. Why isn't Truman Capote standing tall at the end here? You would think in cold blood, literary success. What did Truman do after that? What did he put in print that was so terrible that his reputation is now what it is? That destroyed him so much that his third act, that last decade, manifested the way it did. This next segment is from a wonderful piece 
by Christopher Jansma from electricliterature.com, titled Truman Capote's Lost Novel Would Have Aired All His Dirtiest Laundry. This was published September 20th, 2017. I love the way that Christopher Jansma really focuses in on those chapters within Answered Prayers. There's very few of them that we have gotten our hands on. I want to say a total of five. One more has been discovered, so the numbers are going to change from what I'm about to read you. Christopher Jansma writes, By all accounts, Capote began writing his last novel decades before his death from liver disease in 1984, long before In Cold Blood, maybe even before Breakfast at Tiffany's. And yet, to this day, no one knows for certain if it was ever completed or if Capote simply loved to talk about completing it. For more than 30 years, Truman Capote described the book to anyone who would listen as a Proustian novel based on real stories straight out of New York's 1950s cafe society. It is the only true thing I know, he said. I was born to write the book. It means everything. According to biographer Gerald Clark, Capote envisioned the novel as a large, sprawling story that spanned 30 years, moved between two continents, and included a vast and influential company of players. The title is taken from St. Teresa of Avila's more tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. All we have of it today are three chapters, and a fourth, Mojave, which he later cut out. The first chapter, Unspoiled Monsters, is almost a novella by itself, introducing the narrator, P.B. Jones, a bisexual hustler living in a room at the YMCA and trying to write a novel called Answered Prayers. He is an opportunist, a heel, a rat, according to Clark, clearly a stand-in for Truman. P.B. isn't me, but on the other hand, he isn't not me, Capote said. I'm not P.B., but I know him very well. Jones recounts his life story from the time of his orphaning in a St. Louis movie theater to being raised by nuns and becoming a kind of Hershey bar whore before eventually landing in New York City's literary world. It is here that he gets to peer inside of high society and assumes the companionship of the novel's heroine, Kate McLeod, for whom the second chapter is named. Kate McLeod is like Holly Golightly on steroids, Glamorous and cultured, P.B. calls her his very own death in Venice. Inevitable, perilous as the asp at Cleopatra's breast. Supposedly, she was modeled on as many as half a dozen different society women Capote knew well from that world. Indeed, most of the other characters in the three extant chapters are drawn more directly from famous and powerful people of the time, hotel magnates, wives and ex-wives of steel tycoons, celebrities and countesses, George Davis of Harper Bazaar and Catherine Ann Porter, and in his darkly funny stories, Capote hung out all the dirtiest laundry, 
that he had been noting in decades of running in their circles. Indeed, he relished this tell-all quality. When Unspoiled Monsters was published in Esquire magazine in 1976, Capote posed for the cover as an assassin, holding a stiletto. Women's Wear Daily dubbed him the Tiny Terror. Capote allegedly teased friends that if they were not careful, he would put them in the book. He described the book in People magazine as being like a gun. There's the handle, the trigger, the barrel, and finally the bullet. And when that bullet is fired from the gun, it's going to come out with a speed and power like you've never seen. Wham! The most damaging of all was the third chapter, La Cote Basque, 1965, named for a real restaurant on East 55th Street in Manhattan, where high society often dined. In this story, P.B. lunches with an old friend named Lady Coolberth, who spends the meal gazing around the celebrity-packed room, scathingly dressing everyone down. Some of the guests, like Gloria Vanderbilt and Princess Margaret, both real acquaintances of Truman's, are included with their names unchanged. Why are P.B. Jones here and Lady Coolberth together? Well, Lady Coolberth has been stood up by the Duchess. A little bit of fun here from Lacote Basque, 1965, to set the scene. Carissimo, she cried. You're just what I'm looking for, a lunch date. The Duchess stood me up. Black or white, I said. This would be P.B. White, she said reversing my direction on the sidewalk. White is Wallace Windsor, whereas the Black Duchess is what her friends call Perla Apfeldorf, the Brazilian wife of a notoriously racist South African diamond industrialist. As for the lady, who also knew the distinction, she was indeed a lady, Lady Ina Coolberth, an American married to a British chemicals tycoon and... A lot of women in every way. Tall, taller than most men, Ina was a big, breezy, peppy broad, born and raised on a ranch in Montana. This is the second time she's canceled, Ina Coolberth continued. She says she has the hives, or the Duke has hives, one or the other. Anyway, I've still got a table at Cote Basque, so shall we? Because I do so need someone to talk to, and really, and thank God, Jonesy, it can be you. The crystal was being poured. Ina tasted it. I do miss Cole and Howard Sturgis, even Papa. After all, he did write about me in Green Hills of Africa. Lady Coolberth dishes it all out. Truman Capote writes it all down in this chapter, continuing from Christopher Jansma about La Cote Basque, 1965. Others are thinly disguised and involved in highly libelous stories. One, Anne Hopkins, a wealthy woman, is known to have shot her husband in the face with a shotgun and gotten away with it by claiming she thought he was a burglar just coming out of the shower. This is almost exactly the true life story of socialite Anne Woodward, 
who remained part of the in-crowd even after her husband's suspicious death. We know Dominic's connection with Anne Woodward with the two Mrs. Grenvilles, but we're not quite done talking about Anne. Stay tuned for that. In another such story, Lady Coolberth spots a powerful political figure and relays a tale of a steamy one-night stand the man once had with the wife of a former governor who failed to mention that she was having her period. The next morning, the man finds his sheets covered in blood stains, the size of Brazil, and ends up desperately scrubbing them in the tub with a bar of soap before his wife gets home. People in the know, Truman's friends, recognized instantly that this was based on a rumor about the real-life former New York governor, W. Avril Harriman. Tennessee Williams, who appears in Unspoiled Monsters as Mr. Wallace, one of PB's Johns, captured the fury provoked in the people who had trusted Truman with their biggest secrets. This thing Capote has written is shockingly repugnant and thoroughly libelous. Capote's a monster of the first order, a cold-blooded murderer at heart. He's a liar and everybody knows he is. The backlash against Truman was swift and cruel. He was threatened and snubbed constantly by people he thought were his dearest friends. Even as copies of Esquire flew off the stands, Truman was banned from the high society events where he'd long been a fixture. Many have questioned why Capote published the excerpts instead of keeping it all secret until the whole novel was finished. He likely did not need the money. Certainly, he may have been proud of them. Clark argues that these chapters are his most mature piece of fiction and contain some of the best writing he ever produced. Still, Capote could have guessed that some, if not most, of his friends would despise him for what he was writing. William Todd Schultz, in his book, Tiny Terror, Why Truman Capote Almost Wrote Answered Prayers. That is really, really a good book, friends, if you're looking for another smaller volume to get into about Truman Capote's psychopathy during this time. In Tiny Terror, William Todd Schultz views the whole affair as something akin to a suicide attempt. He argues that Capote never expected and did not know how to handle the immense success that followed in cold blood, and that answered prayers was, on some level, his way of stopping the ride. Releasing it before it was finished may have been an act of desperation, not of overconfidence. The standard thinking is that after the fury that followed the Esquire chapters in 1976, Truman Capote never wrote any more of answered prayers, falling into a deep despair, abusing alcohol and drugs until his death eight years later. This is what Jack Dunphy, Capote's longtime companion, believed, that while Capote pretended publicly to be working hard on the book in the intervening years, he was never able to progress in his work on it. In an enormous oral biography of Capote assembled by George Plimpton, 
Many of those around Capote speculated about what happened to answered prayers. Norman Mailer, one of Capote's greatest literary enemies, recognized the bind that Truman was in. New York society, in Mailer's mind, had swallowed his talent. Answered prayers stemmed from a desire to exact revenge on the beautiful people who had seduced and distracted him from his work. He imagined that Capodia, little Napoleon, believed that writing those chapters would increase his power among the jet set, but he didn't understand the true social force of New York, that even he could be 86th. He did not have the stuff left to say, a plague on your house, and write the book he could write. The book probably died in him ten years earlier. It also may have been a bridge too far. Another enemy, Gore Vidal, scoffed at the idea that Capote could have succeeded in his ambitions to be America's Proust, who was more than just a gossip. Vidal says, but Capote had never read Proust. I quizzed him once sharply on the subject. He was incapable of reading Proust. He didn't have that kind of concentration. And, of course, he had no French or interest in history. I do find it interesting here that our man Nick read Proust. Uh, Proust was his imaginary visitor in his imagination. And again, Dominic Dunn is not going to have a downfall like Truman's third act. And it so very well could have gone that way for Dominic Dunn, but it did not. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. One of those reasons, I believe, was the encounter that Dominic Dunn has with his future editor-in-chief at Vanity Fair, Tina Brown. Remember, this happens when Tina Brown was working for the Tattler in reviewing for the top job at Vanity Fair. There was a small dinner party in which Dominic Dunn was introduced to Tina Brown right before Dominic was about to leave for the trial of his daughter Dominique's murderer. Here, though, I came across one other piece of this puzzle that I think is just amazing, something wonderful here from Tina Brown herself. She writes her review of Answered Prayers for the New York Times when Answered Prayers is released with the chapters that are available. This is published September 13, 1987, from Tina Brown, the very one to make Dominic Dunn famous in her Vanity Fair at the full resurrection of his third act. Tina Brown writes in a piece called Goodbye to the Ladies Who Lunch. It's a time-honored literary tradition for a writer to bite the hand that feeds him. It is also a time-honored literary tradition that when their scalded source material cuts them at parties 
writers always seem surprised. This is certainly the case with Truman Capote, who raised ingratitude to an art form. The chapters of his work in progress, Answered Prayers, published in Esquire in 1975 and 1976, and now republished as a book, were a betrayal that left the smart set shaken, if not stirred. Only three of the four chapters have been included here. Capote put the fourth into his 1980 collection, Music for Chameleons, instead. Of the offending material, the first chapter, Unspoiled Monsters, introduces the narrator P.B. Jones, Capote's dark doppelganger, who skids between high life and low life, working as a male prostitute to finance a promising first novel. The second, Kate McLeod, introduces the odious Mr. Jones to an impossible love object, a mysterious society woman isolated by her sinister rich husband. The third, Lacote Basque, features Jones lunching adieu with a distressed Park Avenue matron who unloads her marital intimacies in a sodden aria of indiscretion. It was the transparent identities in this last that did Capote in. Even to this day, it is fashionable in fashionable circles to take the line that poor Truman lost his marbles when he let out that bit of his awful seedy novel set in Lakote Basque. What did they expect, bleated Truman, when the social world turned on him? I'm a writer and I use everything. Did all those people think I was just there to entertain them? Thereafter, he blamed his failure to finish the novel on a crisis of form. It was not the unsettling public reaction that paralyzed him, he said, but the problem of how to mix on the same palette everything he'd learned from film scripts, plays, reportage, poems, novellas, and novels. This, he claimed, is what kept aborting his attempt to be the American Proust. It was humbug, of course. The Capote of this period was adept at inventing elaborate highbrow angst as a red herring when, in fact, his creative problem was simple. Reading the fragments published now, it is clear that Capote had the raw material for a best-selling nonfiction book and should have written it just as that. It could have been the definitive portrayal of the Witches of Eastside, gleaned from his 20 years as their walker-in-chief. Capote knew he had that material, but also felt it was unpublishable. Even if he managed a path through the libel laws, his revelations would kiss goodbye the ladies who lunch. In 1959, Norman Mailer made this perceptive comment about Capote. I would suspect he hesitates between the attraction of society, which enjoys and repays him for his unique gifts, and the novel he could write of the gossip column's real life a major work, but it would banish him forever from his favorite world. 
Since I have nothing to lose, I hope Truman fries a few of the fancier fish. Mr. Mailer was right about Capote's psychological inhibitions, though I think he was wrong about the proper vehicle for Capote's raw material. I have always felt the journalist in Capote was stronger than the novelist, and that the discipline of fact saved him from fiction's tendency to wallow in charm or yield to malice. That's why In Cold Blood is a greater work than all the fiction put together. The trouble with answered prayers is that Capote at this stage was not amenable to the demands of nonfiction. He was out of control in his life and in his art. The nonfiction constraints of libel, taste, and feeling were just what he needed at a time when his internal editor seems to have collapsed. Such constraints might have forced him to report with the fine calibrations of the muses are heard and in cold blood instead of indulging himself in the worst solution of all, a rubbishy Romana Clay. All that mixing real names with obvious composites achieves is a socio-pornographic ragtime rife with the low cackle of camp. In fact, it's Capote himself who is the braggart. Dishing the sacred monsters is just another form of showing off, and what it confirms is how dependent he'd become on them all. Answered Prayers reveals the seduction of Capote the artist by Capote the socialite. He had become a sacred monster himself. Even as he burned his bridges, he still fantasized the rich, still retained the outsider's thrill at being on the inside track. There is admiration latent in the sneer. All his hard reporting, all his prison visits, only served to excite his romance with the Beaumont. Nonetheless, out of this conflict, Capote could occasionally create art. Between the cloud bursts of malice, there are flashes of prose and answered prayers that bring the aching reminder of a more whole writer, prose that makes the heart sing and the narrative fly. The narrator of Answered Prayers says in a conversation about Proust's remembrance of things past, if he had been absolutely factual, it would have been less believable, but it might have been better. Less acceptable, but better. It's the right epitaph for the book the American Proust didn't write. Thank you, Miss Tina Brown. How lucky did Dominic Dunn get to get Tina Brown after this review as an influence and promoter of our man Nick? I do believe Tina Brown unlocked something in those paragraphs pretty profound in her insight. Truman Capote does not achieve his dream to be the American Proust or the Flaubert he so dreamed of. I wonder, though, does this beg the question, is Dominic Dunn the American Proust? Where does the connection come in with what Dominic Dunn has learned from Truman Capote 
and is also working to within his third act. These mysteries and more are still to be solved in our investigation here on Done and Done. We have landed right at the connection point of our man Dominic Dunn and Truman Capote, and we are about to have some fun this summer. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Your support in all the ways is, as always, incredible. Thank you for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind ratings and reviews, and all your support over at patreon.com as well. Patreon folks, stay tuned. I have a Not Done Yet coming for you this week with all the bits that did not make it into this particular episode as we are winding down Truman Capote. In that Not Done Yet, we're going to talk about Truman Capote's ashes, really literally, and his literary ones as well. What did happen to all the rest of those chapters of Answered Prayers? That and more this week over at Done and Done Patreon and investigators. Until we meet again then or next Monday, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.